Chefs Without Restaurants, episode 155 with Josh Sharkey. Yeah, I mean, I think at the end of the day, product and service are really everything, right? So then that's was probably what helped a lot of those restaurants become successful is that product is obviously always top of mind. Um, and so is service. And, you know, I'm a chef, so it's tough to say this, but, you know, at the end of the day, like really incredible service can actually, you know, help to offset not so great of a product or maybe a product that isn't like the, the best you know, of its, of its class. Uh, and when you have both, obviously that's when, you know, that's when things really, really shine. I think that the, uh, the most important thing, and it happens more now, but in general, what is like vital is to just know what your customers want. I think that there's a tendency to sort of like cook based on what you think is, is right. And you want to do that, but at the same time, you're cooking for people that, that are going to come eat your food and you have to be mindful of that and empathetic to it. And that's, Typically, what I see is like a common thread of success is when you're listening, <laughs> listening to what your customers want, what they don't want, how they want it. And it makes you better as a chef as well. This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your host, Chris Spear. Each week, I'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. I'm your host, Chris Spear. On the show, I have conversations with culinary entrepreneurs and people in the food and beverage industry who took a different route. They're caterers, research chefs, personal chefs, cookbook authors, food truckers, farmers, cottage bakers, and all sorts of culinary renegades. I myself fall into the personal chef category, as I started my own personal chef business, Perfect Little Bites, 11 years ago. And while I started working in kitchens in the early 90s, I've literally never worked in a restaurant. Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing well. On today's podcast, I have Josh Sharkey. He's the founder of Mies, a website that helps chefs organize their recipes. You know, when I have guests like this on the show, I don't want it to be like an infomercial. I only try and bring on guests who actually have products that I use and enjoy and think are really beneficial. One of the cornerstones of this podcast and organization is to really highlight things that I think are going to help you build and grow your businesses. So what I love about Mies is it's an online tool that you can put your recipes into. It makes it super easy to scale them, cost them, and even share them. It's nice because you can give access to your team so that they can look at them. If you're a personal chef, you can also share them with customers so that they can look at them but not edit them. And unlike a lot of these kind of programs, you can actually use Mies for free. And yes, there are paid plans that have some great functions, but if you're looking for a place to just put your recipes in and have them so they're easily accessible wherever you are. If you've got a computer and the internet, Mies is a great tool for that. And because this is a business podcast, you know, we also talk about business. Josh is a chef. He went to culinary school, so he has a background. He has worked in some of the best restaurants in the country. So a lot of that informed Mies. He's not one of these tech guys who hasn't worked in the industry. He has so much restaurant experience. So we also touch on things like the customer experience, launching and growing his business, some of his favorite tools and resources, 
and what he wished he knew before starting his business. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Go check out Mies. The website is getmees.com. That's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z.com. And of course, all the links will be in the show notes. And this is the part where I talk about sponsors. If you go to chefswithoutrestaurants.com forward slash sponsors, you're going to find all the info on our current sponsors, previous sponsors, and affiliate partners. With the affiliate partners, all that means is those are products I already use and love. If you click on the links on that page, it costs you literally nothing, but I'm going to get a small commission when you buy stuff. And I'm most thankful for our podcast audio ad sponsors. So before this week's episode starts, you're going to hear from this week's sponsor, the United States Personal Chef Association. So thanks so much for listening and have a great week. Over the past 30 years, the world of the personal chef has grown in importance to fulfill those dining needs. While the pandemic certainly upended the restaurant experience, it allowed personal chefs to close that dining gap. Central to all of that is the United States Personal Chef Association. Representing nearly 1,000 chefs around the U.S. and Canada, USPCA provides a strategic backbone to those chefs that includes liability insurance, training, communications, certification, and more. It's a reassurance to consumers that the chef coming into their home is prepared to offer them an experience with their meal. USPCA provides training to become a personal chef through our preparatory membership. Looking to showcase your products or services to our chefs and their clients? Partnership opportunities are available. Call Angela today at 1-800-995-2138, extension 705, or email her at A-P-R-A-T-H-E-R at USPCA.com for membership and partner info. Hey, Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Hello there, Chris. It's uh, really cool to have you on the show. I think it was so funny that we actually randomly met in person a couple of weeks ago. I had already been in contact with you about coming on the show and then to just bump over uh, a cup of coffee and some breakfast at Indie Chef Week, I thought was really cool. Well, let's just jump right into it, right? So I usually start with culinary backstory. I want to hear a little bit about you growing up as far as it relates to food and cooking. How did you get into food and cooking? You know, is it something you always wanted to do? Did you have dreams of being a chef, opening a restaurant, or did you just kind of find your way into it? Well, originally, I just found my way into it because my, my father passed away when I was 16. And so I just started cooking for the family because my mom would work late nights. And, you know, it's just sort of a necessity. Uh, and then it turned into like an interest um, where I was I would start cooking on the weekends for fun with my friends. And I originally thought I would go to college for wrestling and had a couple of scholarships for that. And then it turns out that uh, Johnson & Wales had a, uh, a really good wrestling program. And I entered this contest and won a scholarship to Johnson & Wales. So ended up going there. And it, it wasn't actually even at Johnson & Wales, I think, where I where it really clicked like, oh, this is what I want to do. Uh, I, I eventually uh, entered a different contest that uh, I ended up winning. They flew me to New York for the finals. And I, uh, I had, there's some incredible chefs that were the judges, uh, Eric Repair, Marcus Samuelson, Rick Moonen, and Rocco Despirito. And, and um, I ended up winning that. So they flew me to Norway. I got to travel the country of Norway as a very young, you know, I was like 19 uh, with these chefs and ended up cooking at some incredible restaurants there. And that's where I was like, Oh, this is this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is awesome. Um, you know, just being in these Michelin star restaurants and seeing the difference between cooking there and somewhere else, and and just it was just incredible and so inspiring. And that's that's what really sort of like clicked for me. That turned me into a, a cookbook board. Time frame. Where was that? Were you in culinary school? Like, was it when you were going to culinary school? When you also did this contest? Did it kind of line up that way? 
it was like the the end of culinary school like the i mean i mean i, I did an associate's degree so it's uh it was a short stint of culinary school but literally right at the end and so i think it was two th- the year 2000 like the middle of 2000 is when i is when i ended up going to to norway uh and i moved to new york literally right after that so what jobs did you do when you got to new york were you going for the high end restaurants yeah so i that's that's really all i've done up until I started my own businesses. So right when I got to New York, uh, I started work, working for Chef Rick Moonen at a restaurant called Oceana. Uh, from there, I went and worked uh, at John George for a little bit. Uh, and then I went to uh, Italy for a while. Uh, came back, started working for Chef Floyd Cardoz uh, and Danny Meyer at, at, at Tabla. Uh, and then I went to this restaurant called Boulet and cooked there for a while. Uh, and then I went to work uh, for a great coons at, at Cafe Grey quite a while. So that was the span of about 10 or 12 years. And then I opened my own restaurants after that. All amazing chefs and restaurants. Did you see any kind of commonalities? I'm always interested in how especially high-end restaurants operate. What are some of the common threads with those chefs and how those places operate? Because they're at a whole different level. Did you see things that they all kind of had in common, whether it be like how they managed their staff, the creative process, anything that kind of stood out to you that, that you maybe even then took when you went to open your own businesses? Yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, product and service are really everything, right? So then that's was probably what helped a lot of those restaurants become successful is that product is obviously always top of mind. Um, and so is service. And, you know, I'm a chef, so it's tough to say this, but, you know, at the end of the day, like really incredible service can actually, you know, help to offset not so great of a product or maybe a product that isn't like the, the best, you know, of its, of its class. Uh, and when you have both, obviously that's when you know, that's when things really, really shine. I think that the, uh, the most important thing, and it happens more now, but in general, what is like vital is to just know what your customers want. I think that there's a tendency to sort of like cook based on what you think is, is right. And you want to do that, but at the same time, you're cooking for people that that are going to come eat your food and you have to be mindful of that and empathetic to it. And that's typically what I see is like a common thread of success is when you're listening, <laughs> listening to what your customers want, what they don't want, how they want it. And it makes you better as a chef as well. But there is a fine line there because sometimes the customer doesn't know what they want, like in terms of cuisine, right? Like if I ask, I ask my customers, like, what do you like? What don't you like? And your customers might come and say, I love chicken Parmesan. I like lasagna. I like chicken Alfredo. It's like, well, like, that's not what I want to cook, right? So how do I take that and distill that out into something that they're going to enjoy, but something that they couldn't make? Like, I'm, you know, as a personal chef, I'm not looking to just recreate whatever your favorite dishes at the Olive Garden are. Uh, you know, so how do I then say, okay, well, I hear that you like that, but then also, uh, I think you're going to love this thing. And it's something they've never even heard of. You know, it's the same with businesses. You talk about startups and, you, you know, a lot of times a business wants to... Facebook. Nobody asked for Facebook, right? Like if you ask people like what they wanted, they're not going to tell you that. All these super innovative companies came up with their own thing. So I guess it's kind of distilling out what you hear people say they want, what you see a need for, and then kind of finding a common ground, if that makes sense. It's funny because it's 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 very similar to um, to starting a you know a, a startup like that. Is you 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 have to know what questions to ask, and you have to know what answers not to sort of. Um, hold as much weight to because you're not looking for what you're not looking for is the solution you know you're not looking for them to tell you i want this type of cuisine that does this you know in the startup world it's what are the problems that you have and that you don't need to tell me the solution i'm going to come up with that that's that's my job you just need to tell me what what are your pains and as a customer in the in, in the food world same thing like what do you want like well i always find that like i never know when something is spicy 
or not, or I never know if like if something is going to be too rich or, and, and you can take that and sort of run with it. Like you don't want to let the customer be too prescriptive, but you do want to understand what is the pain point. Like it, it, the, the classic sort of um, cliche thing is like Henry Ford saying, if I asked everybody what they wanted at this time in history, they would have said faster horses. And it's the same thing, right? So you, you need to be careful about what type of information you're pulling um, because you want to solve problems, not just, you know, take, you know, word for word what customers are saying, because you're right. Sometimes they don't know what they want and sometimes they might, think they do. And then once you sort of give them what inference you've taken from their, like th- their concerns, it'll usually sort of work out in the, in the end anyways. So before you started Mies, there was a period where you, you know, you're working as a cook, chef in restaurants, you opened your own places. What was the reasoning behind that? Like, did you always want to open a place? And, and what were these places that you were then opening on your own? Yeah, I've always wanted to to, to own a business. And I think I never thought that I would start a fast casual restaurant. You know, I came from the fine dining world and the upper echelon of fine dining. And so I always thought that I would be opening a fine dining restaurant right around 2008 was when I decided, okay, I'm going to start my restaurant. And, you know, I was considering a fine dining restaurant, but uh, for anybody that was around then 2008 was uh, a crash, a financial crash. And, um, you know, not a great time to be doing really, really high end food and high cost food. And so we had this other concept that, We've been thinking about uh, my business partner and I, and he has a bunch of restaurants in San Francisco now. And the idea was just to sort of fill this void of really good food that's approachable um, using the same techniques that we know from the fine dining world and the same products from like farmers and things, but doing it in in a type of sort of cuisine that you wouldn't be used to seeing it like fast casual. In this case, it was like American fast casual, like hot dogs and sandwiches and burgers and things. At the time, that was very novel. That didn't exist. Now it's everywhere it's ubiquitous but but um at the time it was very novel and so that's that we just sort of decided that was the better route to go for a business and then at some point you decided you were going to start Mies. so let's talk about that because that's really why i want to have you on the show i want to hear about this company you started kind of the background in it so what is Mies, and how did you get there from you know where you were well Mies is really the culmination of um, all the things that I sort of would, would sort of slowly developed these frustrations over, over the course of the last 20 years of being a cook and then being a chef and running kitchens and then starting a business and running a business and building a team and um, training a team and then running a very large restaurant group and, you know, and, and having multi-unit brands and all these sort of like pain points that just kept developing. And um, I mean, the impetus originally, came, honestly, was like I lost a notebook in like 2002 and um, I was working for Chef Floyd at Tabla and I um, and I was working for free for Mario Vitale making salumi in the mornings. And, um, and I had this notebook of all the recipes and humidity and temperatures and times and ideas and all kinds, everything, everything you could think of. And I lost that notebook. And so the novel idea originally was like, I want to digitize all my recipes. And then over the course of 15 more years, there's all these other things that were like, oh, we, we need this, we need this, we need this. And finally, after about eight years of running my restaurants, I realized like, okay, I'm going to have a much bigger impact on the industry if I can give this back as opposed to just, you know, my, my restaurants. And so I divested from the restaurants and started working on Mies. And Mies is essentially our digital tool, the digital tool for food professionals. You know, I think, you know, the frustration I've had at a very high level, like a 30,000 foot level is that. As food professionals, the only technology we have in the kitchen is inventory software. And like, what the heck? Like, you know, we that 
recipes are way more than just like a, a list of ingredients for a cost. Those are important and you need that. And it needs to be way easier than it is in an inventory so, uh, system. But there's so much more that we do, you know, in terms of like training and collaboration and R&D and, you know, scaling batches, like the way that we actually need to scale them and converting units and um, distributing your, 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 your recipes and sharing them and, and um, all the things that we do that we need allergens and, you know, um, we need to understand the cost of our, our recipes and that needs to be really easy. So Mies is essentially the, the, the culinary operating system for any food professional. doesn't matter if you're running a multi-unit restaurant group or if you're a private chef uh, or you're a culinary student or you have a catering company. Mies is intended to be where all your recipes live. And then there's lots of really cool stuff that you can do with your recipes once they're in there. And we make it really easy to get the recipes into Mies, which is really important as well. I feel the pain of losing a notebook, even though I digitized, you know, early on, I was putting my recipes in like Word documents. I used to keep them on a lanyard on a jump drive. And one time I left that in a computer somewhere and it was taken and never returned. And you're just like, even though I thought that would be a lot safer and a lot easier, I I kept it like around my neck, like it was the submarine nuclear launch keys or something. And just one time I left it in a jump, the jump drive in a computer and someone yanked it. Yeah. And that was it. Um, yeah, I've used some of the software. You know, I used to work at Sodexo. So, you know, they have a lot of operating systems that maybe many restaurants don't. So I'm very familiar with using like these things where you've got the recipes and the scaling. I find the scaling to always be clunky. You know, like we've made crab cakes for four people and then you scale it up to be a hundred. And now that two teaspoons of Old Bay is like four cups of Old Bay and it just like gets blown out. Is there a way that your scaling system kind of looks at something like that, where it's not just like we take this and times everything times a hundred. Yeah. So there's, I mean, there's, there's custom batch sizes and things like that. And, and by the way, like, first of all, the, all of those systems and I know the ones you're talking about in, in Sodexo, it, it'd be great if they actually converted from teaspoons to cups. They, they don't because that's, that's really difficult. Uh, we, we do that in Mies because I, I, at the same time, always get annoyed if I have a recipe that's like, you know, um, have a cup of, baking soda or something for a really big batch and then i want to make a small batch and it's like 0.025 cups i'm like i can't measure that um and so i want to convert that to grams or to teaspoons and so what we what you know in me is like i uh spent a lot of time you know thinking through all the things that were really hard about getting recipes into any of these platforms and then using the recipes in the platforms and so that's the majority of what we focus on is how can we make it really easy to scale and to convert if I'm running low on an ingredient and let's just say I'm making a pepper relish and I, it's supposed to be, you know, 10,000 grams and I have 9,482 grams after I dice everything, obviously, because I won't have exactly like that the recipe will scale for me. So it's precise. And if I want to make two quarts instead of four pounds, I can do that. And, and, um, we do that because, um, we have this database of thousands and thousands of ingredients that we're continually up- updating. We have chefs and registered dietitians that are that are updating these things all the time with all of the empirical information that you would typically need to like do yourself, right? So like the yields and the conversion. So if you dice an onion or chop an onion or slice an onion or peel an onion or juice an onion, and how much does that onion weigh and what does that convert to if you dice a cup of it and how much does that, you know, in, in volume and weight and what are the allergens associated and what are the other ways in which you spell that word and the ways that you misspell that word and all that is built in and constantly updated so that, A, it's really easy to get your information in and become have it be way more dynamic than it was in like your Word doc. And B, that you can do all those things. When you need to get cost, for example, and you're using a pound of avocado in a recipe, 
but of course you buy avocados by the piece, like a 24 count you know, box or something. Well, it's already converts for you. It's already built in. You know, we know that a avocado on average has 4.35 ounces of flesh in it. You can customize that if you want, but it's built in. So we try to think about like, what are all the things that we as chefs do in these systems that aren't cooking? And we just do all that for you so that you can focus on what I want to make. How do I want to make it? Do I want to update it? If I update it, will everybody know right away? And can it be easy to update and easy to change and share? And, 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 um, and that's really where we should be spending our time as chefs, not figuring out the conversion between this and that and, and adding in all these sort of like sub recipes that you don't even use because you need to know how much a peeled carrot, you know, yields to things like that. And how easy is it to get recipes in? So like, let's say again, going back to a word doc, cause that's how a lot of things like, can you just kind of copy and paste and drop in? And there's some way that it, you know, like has some smart tech that, that converts that out. We essentially devise of the course of several years, I just got recipes from everyone I knew and everyone I didn't know and everyone they knew and uh, looked at thousands and thousands of like formats of recipes because we all do it differently. Uh, And we developed the lexicon of recipe data, meaning like ingredients and quantities and units of measure and stations and tools and headers and notes and prep methods and all all those things that are associated. And we can parse all of that out. And so when you import a recipe, even if you put like salt to taste and half G of, you know, diced onion and three PT of however you write it, if you put headers or notes, we we can ascertain that. And so we are always tracking kind of the delta between what you enter and the final output so that we, we can keep getting smarter too. So like when you take that random word document you have and put it into Mies, it standardizes it and it still makes it look beautiful and structured but it has all that sort of information that you need. So you can scale it and convert it and, you know, add your images and videos and really, really easily. You know, when we were building these, uh, I was building it within the ecosystem of this really large restaurant group that I was running. And, you know, we had to put our recipes into a inventory system as well. It took us about nine months to get all of our recipes into that inventory system, literally. And we had, you know, a full-time person working on it. Cause, I mean, we have, it was seven different concepts and thousands of recipes. It took us literally two days to get them into Mies. And now we have, you know, integrations built where you can actually like push your recipe data to those systems. So the amount of time that you save is, you know, immense. And as you know, in nine months, those recipes are not the same anyways. <laughs> We've changed them. So imagine having to update that. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's that's a big part of what we're trying to solve as well. Just make it really, really easy to get all this information in so you can do what's really important, which is like use these recipes. Can you quick convert from like, say, grams to teaspoons? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can do it dynamically by every ingredient because obviously like a teaspoon of baking soda weighs a different amount than a teaspoon of uh, shiokoji, which is different from a teaspoon of dark rye flour. All those, all of those conversions are built in. You know, one of the big things I do, you know, I blog, right? And like I weigh everything in grams, but one of the complaints I get is, you know, the average home user isn't weighing things yet, even though they should be. But it's like, I want to be precise on, you know, this is like a seven and a half grams of whatever. And then I post on my blog and people are like, well, how many teaspoons is that? It's like, well, shit, I didn't figure that out. Like you should be weighing this. But yeah, sometimes people still want to see that kind of measurement. So I just was looking for something also that would be really easy to do it that way. Yeah, 100%. And you can do it really, really easily. I mean, you literally, wherever you see a unit in a recipe, just click on it, put whatever other unit you want, and it updates for you. And that's not just like grams of teaspoons. Let's just say I'm using one jalapeno, right? But I'm actually, let's just say I'm using 25 grams of jalapeno. Well, the average jalapeno is, you know, 28 grams. That Some are larger, some are smaller. But if someone does want to know how many jalapenos it is, 
then, you know, they can use one. And if you have a recipe where you do just want to say one jalapeno for my salsa verde, you can get a cost, you know, per, per pound of that. So that's all just built in. I also use Mies at home and my wife uses it. And so when she's making a recipe for like one of my, one of my pancake recipes, let's say I have it on grams, of course, but she's not going to weigh anything in grams. So she just has it all in, in, in volume for her. Where's the hard sell? I mean, when you try and pitch this to, you know, restaurants or chefs, even if you're just recreationally, even if you're just recreationally talking to friends, like, do you have people say like, I'm not interested, I'm not into, you know, writing recipes, whatever, like, what are some of the things you hear as to maybe why people haven't wanted to adapt the system? Most chefs, I haven't really come across chefs, you know, and my team does most of them now, but like, the majority of chefs see it and they're like, holy shit, like, where has this been my whole life? Like, this is, you know, because, look, it's what I wanted. I'm just building the thing that I've wanted my whole life. And, you know, I'm a chef. And so my hope is that, like, everybody, like, we're all in this together. Like, we just build what everybody keeps asking for. The pushback we do get is there is a, obviously like a, like a, uh, like a segment of, of chefs. It's funny, you know, in, the, in, in sort of like the, the fine dining world, this, like, never is the case. But there are a segment of chefs that are like, my recipes are very, like, precious and I, and, and, and I, I don't want anybody to see them and I don't want to like digitize them. And for them, that's, you know, that they, we, we, we honestly, we just, we, we don't really um, try to sort of like force that from them and they have to, you know, like get, get over or not. Uh, we have some of the best chefs in the world and most of them are like, try to execute what we do, <laughs> you know? So that's, that's one. And I think there's also like a, a, a segment of a very small segment. And I think there it's a, it's a dying breed of, of, of them that, that, um, that say, oh, we don't use recipes. You know, anybody that says they don't use recipes, it's there. It's a novel thing to say because you do. First of all, um, if you have a team and you don't use recipes, good luck surviving. To your question of like how you don't survive as a business, don't have recipes, and uh, you know that's a really great way of not surviving because you know customers need consistency. And if you just think that everybody will just make it the same way because of some way you've told them to make it, well, that's just not going to happen. And it's just not a very good way to, to run a business. And, and then you're, it also sets people up for failure because when they don't, it's a very old school way of thinking because when they don't do it the way that you want, like your first you know, reaction is to blame them. And it's not their fault at all. It's because you didn't document exactly what you want to have happen. And we make it really easy to do that, even with video and things. So you can be very clear. But when you are like as an individual chef, if you're just cooking like you, you're a private chef and you go somewhere, a lot of what you're going to do is probably by taste. You're just like, you know, you're not measuring everything as you go. That said, and, and, and I'm the same way as a chef a lot of times when I cook, but there's a lot of things where like, I need the base, right? Like if I'm making nok cham, right? I have a base of like that I've over the years of like, this is how much like, you know, lime juice and sugar and jalapeno and shallot that I use and how much fish sauce. And like, I'll have derivatives of that. And I'll maybe add peach or I'll add, you know, peanut butter and things like that. But like, I have my, my base because like, First of all, you know, all of us, sometimes we just have brain fart. It's like, I forgot, <laughs> I forgot the thing. Uh, and then there are some things, of course, that like, you just need a recipe for, like bread and, you know, and, 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 a, and there are a lot of sauces where like, you know, the ratios are really, are really, really important and you can derive from it and you, and you should, but you have a base. And I think that's, that's sort of the bedrock of mise en place, right? Is have all of your sort of like, you know, information together in addition to your products, right? So like, yes, you set up your station, but you also set up like, okay, here's, here's like the, you know, the foundation of all of these things that I cook and I'm going to sort of iterate on them, but I want to know that I have like this base because also if you do iterate on them, like what worked, what didn't work, 
right? If I if you did add more of something or less of something, or you reduced it longer, or you added you know mango puree this time instead of um, passion fruit, or like what happened? Was it good? Was it bad? And and that kind of thing is really important as well. So that was a bit of a rant, but uh. <laughs> no, but I, I totally get it. Like I just made a chimichurri this morning, and that starts with me making a red wine vinaigrette first, and I have a ratio of how much oil to how much vinegar I like, and then how many you know, teaspoons of whatever spice, then the herbs, you can get a little loosey goose, you know, it's like, you know, yeah. one bunch cilantro, one bunch parsley, or two bunches of both. And just, you know, then you kind of adjust by texture, and it might need more salt. But I always start with this very base like vinaigrette. So I get the balance of oil to vinegar to spice, right? And then yeah. you can just kind of start playing around with the types of herbs and, and balance it from there. But yes, there's like a very definite starting point that I have with that recipe. So it's a hybrid of Yes, there's some recipe, and then some is kind of by taste and texture. 100%. What happens if I use Mies, and for whatever reason, I don't want to use it anymore? Like, it's price, or I don't like it or something. Like, my concern is always that I've put all this work in this thing that's on someone else's platform, and then I'm not using it anymore. Is there a way to export your stuff out? You know, just thinking about, like, Instagram, right? Like, you post all your food photos on there. It's the only place you have it. Someone hacks your account you've lost it, you start from zero. So the same way, like, because that's my concern is I've got all these recipes, I'm going to put all this effort into it. You know, I don't want people to start off on the negative or the bad foot thinking that they would leave. But that is something in the back of my mind is like, okay, I put in all this work to put my recipes here. Now, for whatever reason, I'm not using it. Is there a way to get those recipes off the system or to keep them or something? Or, you know, what's to say that like you, you just go out of business. It's not your thing anymore. Now I've lost all this work I've put into it. Cause I do think a lot of us are like hoarders with those recipes and that stuff. Right. And you want to make sure that if something goes awry, you're still going to have those. Well, a hundred percent. And you and you should be right. Those are, you should have those for life. Uh, and we thought about all of that before we ever even launched both from a security standpoint, right. To make sure no one can ever like get your recipes um, from an evergreen standpoint of like me's uh, is free uh, to just have your recipes, right? So uh, if you if you're using these for your business and you know you're getting your costs or whatever, all those things that you need to do, you have a team, you're sharing whatever those like you know you can pay for the for the for the for the app to do all those things. But if at any point you're like you know what I I'm I'm not doing that anymore. There's there's a free version of me to so just have your recipes, uh, and that's because yeah you should you should have these for life, and you can export. Um, obviously, like exporting recipes out of Mies, they're not going to be nearly the same, right? Because all the functionality is what you can do in Mies. Outside of that, they're just a static, you know, a static document. And, you know, the, the value is obviously having them to be able to do all these things to them. But there's lots of ways in which we make sure that you never lose your recipes and, uh, and that no matter what, um, you can have them, even if you can't pay any longer. Sometimes you just can't pay. Sometimes people go to business and they still want their recipes. And, uh, that's important, actually, for us, because our, our vision here is, you know, I want this to be the universal recipe medium. Like when you think of creating and storing your recipes, they should go into Mies. And then there's lots of other stuff you want to do. And if you want to do those things, then yeah, you can you can pay for that. But at any time, you can always just have your recipes, you know, at hand and, and not and not have to have that paywall. Uh, it's a reason why we partner with a lot of culinary schools and students get Mies as well, because we, we want you to have this for life. It's, it should be something that you have. You know, I wish 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I started putting my recipes in here because I've been putting them in from, you know, over the last couple of years, I've been putting in all my recipes from all the restaurants I worked at and all the pla- all the things that I've done. And um, there's tons that I, I'm sure that I don't have in there. And I'm like, man, if I had this from day one, 
I would have so much stuff and I would have so much like, um, you know, insights of like, okay, I want to make something with quince and I can look back and say, what was that thing I did with quince at Boulay where we used sodium citrate and, and like, oh yeah. And then I did that thing, you know, at that Italian restaurant in Piedmont and we, and they had that reduction and I can, I can see all those things. It's like, oh yeah, there's that thing. And, and it's all there for me and I can pull it up really quickly. So is there a search function by like ingredient or something? Like if I'm just looking for something that uses, you know, key limes or whatever, can you search and it'll like go through? Oh yeah. So it's, we, we have like search on steroids. It's like search and filter. Like basically you can, of course you can search by any name or any ingredient, but you can, you, you don't, and you don't have to like create tags or anything. Basically as, you, as soon as you create a recipe, you can search by you know name and green. You can search by the station exists on any tools that you use and any words that that exist in the prep steps or in the headers or notes. Uh, you know um, who you've shared it with or what allergens are associated with it or you know when it was created. All that stuff is you know searchable and filterable. So in Mies, you can say, okay, I want to see everything that has you know quince and blueberries that was made by Chris that doesn't have a dairy allergy from or something, you know, and all of that, you can, so you can parse it and kind of get exactly what you're looking for. And there's ways to share recipes with uh, third parties, like other chefs. Like, let's say I've got all, I have a thousand recipes in the system, but I'm doing a pop-up dinner with you. So I want you to see these five recipes only. Is there a way to get you just like those five recipes? There's three ways to share recipes in me. So this sort of like friend to friend way is I just can share a copy with you. Right. And that's basically like, and you don't need to pay. Basically, like you get a you get you'll get an email that says, "Hey, Josh just shared this recipe for tart de tan with you, and you now have a free free version of these, and you have that recipe, and you have all the stuff associated with it." And that's one way. So to share a copy, um, the other way is to share access. So like I can share just like you would in Google, let's say, where I can share view access to you or edit access to you, and then that way you can see if it's a viewer access, you can't edit it, but you can still scale it. You can see all the videos and pictures and um, you can print it, that kind of stuff, but you can't edit the recipe. Or I can share edit access that you can actually edit the recipe. And then the last way is I can publish recipes. So like you'll see this on Instagram a lot with um, people where they like, you can generate a public link uh, and then post that on Instagram. It's actually a great way to sort of like, if you're working on a recipe, you can post it and it has like, you know, you can make videos and it can be sort of its own little, you know, story of the prep steps and, and the ingredients and people can now scale that recipe and convert it. Or you can put it on your website and um, so those are the three ways, sort of sharing a copy, uh, granting access to the recipes, or um, publishing them to the web. What do you wish you knew before you started Mies? Is there anything, any skills that maybe you could have been better at or just anything you were really surprised by? Oh, my God. There's like a billion things. I wouldn't even, <laughs> wouldn't even know where to start. There's so many mistakes that we made. Um, you know, I, I think the, the most important one is um, – well, like with anything, just assume you don't know anything. Uh, and, you know, I had a lot of cognitive bias around what I think a recipe app should be. Uh, so I did spend a lot of time talking to other chefs about what they do, what they what they don't do, what they like, what they don't like, where they're storing their recipes, all those kinds of things. But I think if I could have gone back, we probably would have just released sooner and then just gotten that feedback as we built because it just took longer, cost more money for us to, to do what we what the chefs wanted. So that's, I think there's never like a, an early enough time to just kind of like get it into everybody's hands. And also just some assumptions around the understanding of like mechanics of food costing and things like that, that I've done for the last 20 years. I wish when I started that I 
I had realized um, that it's not as intuitive as I thought because it took us a long time to build that intuitiveness into the app. We we, we now have it, but it, but I, I I wish that we'd done it in the beginning. So kind of like, what was the time frame with your launch? Was it minimum viable product, get it out there, get people using it? Or was it more like, let's get this right. We really need to work some kinks out. We did sort of take a while before we launched because, um, you know, my hypothesis was that the incumbent at the moment is Word docs and spreadsheets, right? So whether that's, you know, the static files of those or like Google Sheets, Google Docs. And so we had to be at least 10x better than them in most things and at least comparable in the things that were, were, where, we, where we needed to be. And that took a while. That wasn't something we could just like, you know, do day one. Um, and so it, we had to build a fair amount through that. And it took a lot of, you know, <laughs> a lot of money and time to do that. But it was the right thing to do. If I launched with like this very basic thing, it would have just, I, I already knew the answer that like, this isn't not going to be enough for you to, to switch. Apart from that, uh, we launched like right during, like it was right when COVID hit was when we were planning to launch. Like May of 2020 was our like launch date. So I actually paused on the launch and I instead had my developers stop what they were doing and build this sort of like consumer version of the app and launch this thing called Recipes for Relief. And I allowed chefs to create uh, recipes in Mies and sell them to consume to, to their customers. And 100% of the proceeds went to the chefs and their business. Uh, and so we let helped chefs raise tens of thousands of dollars for themselves and for their business through this um, Recipes for Relief initiative. I ended that, you know, at the end of 2020, uh, and we launched at the end of 2020 with the with the B2B product. Um, but we'll be bringing that back in a, in, a, in another version in in the future uh, to really help sort of like chefs connect with consumers and generate more revenue and things like that. But I didn't feel it was right to launch when everybody was, you know, shutting down. And so I said, I was like, what can I, you know, my again, my my mission is always just like, how can I have the biggest impact on the industry because this is the industry that gave me everything that I have and you know, Mies is that now for me, I do believe that like this is going to have a, a an everlasting sort of like paradigm shift type impact on, on the industry. Uh, but at the time, you know, I had to ask myself is, will this have that impact right now? And, it, and it, the answer was no, like, like, let's help my friends and other colleagues in the industry. Uh, let's help these chefs, like earn cash right now, because they're all out of work, you know, or, or their business is not generating revenue. And, and so that's what we did. That was the first time I heard of you and, and saw this. I thought it was such a cool thing, like long before I even knew what Mies really was. Oh, cool. Awesome. What are some of your favorite resources? These can be culinary, business, personal, like websites, books, tools. What are some things that you really love that maybe have helped you grow um, either personally or professionally? Well, I'm an avid reader, so I read a lot of books. Um, and so there's, I mean, there's so many books that that have had an impact on me from a business standpoint. And and from a from a cooking standpoint, I mean, there's tons of cooks that I love. Um, but in terms of like books, as it relates to business, there, there's a bunch. I think um, Crossing the Chasm is a great one. Uh, Play Bigger, um, Zero to One by Peter Thiel, uh, High Output Management uh, by Andy Grove. I mean, I can go on. There's 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 so many incredible books. I I also like I read Siddhartha once a year. Um, it's incredible, sort of like just sort of like gut check of like where you at in life. What are you thinking about? Like what's important to you? Uh, what's what, what did you think was important that isn't? So I, I tend to sort of go towards books for that kind of thing. Me too. I mean, as I, I didn't go to school for business. I went to Johnson Wells for culinary. I had no business experience. So when I wanted to start my own business, I spent a ton of time reading books. 
listening to audiobooks all kind of within that same realm. Zero to One's a really interesting one. I, I don't know how it's tough for me now to separate the man from the book. Yeah. It's like, it can tough. you still read? Could you? I read it long before I knew much about, you know, his beliefs, politics, policies. It's like, could you go back today and reread that book and not look at it through like tinted glasses? I don't know. It's funny you say that because I think, I mean, this is going to get a little bit, um, this could be like political, but there's really no, there's no one that's achieved something great that also hasn't, you know, uh, done something that probably annoys people. Uh, I don't believe in in his political views, uh, but I also can't sort of deny like the impact that he's had on the industry and, and the impact that that book has had on me because it's all about like just adding exponential value to the world. And that's how you create a great business. And I think that that gets lost so often that people think, you know, you just need to figure out how you become profitable or how you make a few dollars as passively as possible, whatever that thing is. And I think his sort of take is similar to Elon Musk. And like, how much value can you bring? And Elon Musk, I, th- I know is also very controversial, but like, it's hard to deny that he's literally changing our world. And his, you know, like beliefs on creating value means sort of like, you know, making sure that there's a big enough delta between the current utility incumbent and what you're, you know, the, the state of the art. And like how big of an impact can you have and how many people can that impact? And it's a very similar sort of context of what, of what Peter Thiel was saying. And I, I have to separate like the, the views from the person. I also think, you know, at the end of the day, like it's America. And as soon as we start like not uh, reading things or not entertaining things or not listening or not like hearing uh, both sides, it's, it's the minute that we're like, we're just a part of that same problem, you know, because there's people, there's people in my family who I, I don't believe with their political views, um, but I still love them and I still will listen to them. And, and I think we have to be careful about, you know, how we actually like, um, how we go about that disagreement, you know, because you, you need to be able to disagree and voice that, but you also need to, you know, see that every human has flaws, you know. It's a slippery slope for sure. And, you know, like every single person, show me a, an actor, a musician, and, and anyone who hasn't done something that didn't piss off someone. You know, it's like I there's musicians I love, and then people say like, but he was terrible as the front man. He was like the worst person, and all his bandmates hate him. It's like, well, you know, I still love the music. Like, I can't separate that out. Yeah, I mean, look, look at Kanye West. You know, he's doing some really, really, really crazy things, and he is a genius. And I get a lot of joy out of his music. I love his music, but like, I, I, and I see the things that he's doing, and I'm like. Oof, that's not, <laughs> don't do that. Um, and I don't agree with them and I wouldn't condone them, but he's brought so much joy to like me in terms of like his music. And there's, there's lots of people like that, that I think, you know, you just have to know that there's nothing is really binary, you know, that we're humans are um, a real blend of lots of different things and anything that you've done, there's probably somebody out there that doesn't agree with part of it and it doesn't make you a bad person. There are some things that make you a bad person. So we can't separate that. But, um, you know, most of it is pretty, pretty blended. Agreed. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with before we get out of here today? No, I, would say, I mean, it sounds like most of your listeners are chefs. So apart from obviously the the, the shameful plug of, of me, I would say, you know, just do what you love, continue to do what you love. Don't don't look at what, uh, at what other people are doing or, you know, compare to other people. If you're cooking and you enjoy it, and you're able to make a living at it, that's amazing. You know, and it doesn't mean you need to be in a restaurant. It doesn't mean that you need to have started some sort of any type of business. If you're, if you've found some sort of medium, which you can cook and make a living from it, you're already successful. Yes. 
Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. And to all of our listeners, this has been Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Go to chefswithoutrestaurants.org to find our Facebook group, mailing list, and chef database. The community is free to join. You'll get gig opportunities, advice on building and growing your business, and you'll never miss an episode of our podcast. Have a great week.